as many of you listeners know, Ryan and I are huge advocates of doing it yourself, especially when it comes to making food. Ryan is currently in the backcountry right now, and he's basically surviving on mostly freeze-dried food that he has made himself over the last year. We have partnered with Harvest Right Freeze Dryers, and really, they are in the industry. They are the go-to for having an in-home freeze dryer that is easy to use and makes the most delicious food that you can store for up to 25 years. There's lots of different reasons that you may want to make uh, your own backcountry food. That would be for hiking, hunting, uh, camping with your family, and just having more nutritious recipes that you can make yourself. You know what's in it. There's not all the junk. Maybe you need to have emergency food on hand. Like we just had a huge winter storm this week in Montana. And I can't tell you how many mornings driving to work, the freeways are scary. So, you know, if something happens, if you're traveling, you need emergency food, that might be an option having it for you. Uh, what if you have a big garden like we've had for many, many years, and I'm hoping next year, I'm going to give back to my big garden, but using all that food, all the extra food that you're growing and eating it for the rest of the year. Um, and just overall healthy living. Did you know you can even make your own pet food? So you can make freeze-dried pet food with your freeze dryer. And I have been feeding my older dog mainly um, fresh food. And the freeze dryer is amazing because you can make the food, get the recipe for the dog food, throw it in the freeze dryer, have the freeze dryer, and just add water to it. And it's way cheaper than buying it at the pet food stores. So there's lots of different reasons that you might want to get a freeze dryer. I mean, the benefits of freeze drying food, one is taste. Compared to dehydrated food, you're gonna it's gonna maintain flavor and freshness the best. Um, the other one is shelf life. Like I said, up to 25 years. Nutrition, again, along with that taste, it's retaining all the nutrients. Mainly, it's not getting rid of it during the dehydration process. Um, there's lots of versatility with it. You can do dairy, which is you cannot do with dehydration. You can do meat, which you can do with dehydration, but with the fat content, it can be very difficult and time consuming. Um, you can do produce. You can do a complete meal. You know, you make spaghetti one night, throw it, your leftovers in the freeze dryer, and bam, you have a freeze dried meal. It's really easy. These Harvest Right freeze dryers are so easy to figure out. Everything's automated. And if you do the math, I think that freeze-dried food is the third of the cost of store-bought food. So if you're buying a meal for $15 at REI or Sportsman's Warehouse or online, you could be paying a third of that for each meal. So that that's one of the bigger reasons Ryan did it too, because he's sort of cheap that way. So Harvest Right has an amazing community online at harvestright.com. They are always having sales. Right now, they're having $300 off um, their Pro uh, freeze dryer. And this is a brand new product. Um, and you can get white, you can get silver. It's really beautiful. Now, we have a, I don't know if we have a Pro. I'm not sure, but we have a black one. And Ryan uses it. It's constantly running when Ryan is home. Um, Ryan hasn't been home very much in the last three months, but when he is home, it's constantly running because he's getting prepped for his next 
um, trip. So we highly encourage you to get a freeze dryer if you're considering it. We know it can be expensive, but it might be something that really changes the game up for you in your backcountry diet. You can go to the show notes here on this podcast. You can also go to our website at stealthyhunter.com slash partners. And there you can link through. If you use that link, you support the podcast. Um, Any of those links support the podcast and you will get a discount on your freeze dryer. But harvestrate.com, great place to get your freeze dryer, great place to get started on making your own food. We highly support them. And thank you for supporting this podcast by shopping at Harvestrite. Welcome back to the Hunt Harvest Health podcast. This is Dr. Hillary, and uh, I'm excited to be doing a new podcast today with a guest, Conrad, Conrad Hafen. He is uh, owner of Hafen Beef in Utah. And the reason that he's on the podcast is he reached out to me, sent me an email and said that he listened to the podcast and asked me if I would be interested in talking about this. And fortunately I am. And I think it's a very important um, discussion that has been going on. I think a lot in maybe more the quote unquote alternative farming and ranching world. But um, I think as far as Uh, Those of us who do eat meat and those of us who do not have the luxury. Now, I do have the luxury of having multiple chest freezers in my garage full of wild game. Um, That's because Ryan hunts a lot and he's very successful. So I'm very lucky about that. But as we know, and Conrad brought this up to me, there is a very small percentage of people that are actually successful on their maybe one or two hunts that they get to do a year. And so having the option of uh, meat that is, um, uh, I guess, healthy for us um, and also healthy for the environment, uh, that is something that is really important and something that we should point out here. So Conrad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. It's good to be here. Yeah. So um, I did a little bit of an intro there on you. And obviously, I don't know you very well. We've chatted through email and I've read up on your website. Uh, Your website, if people want to go to, uh, they want to follow along with this, is um, Hafen. It's H-A-F-E-N beef.com. Hafenbeef.com. And we're going to talk more about the stuff that's on this website, what you do, that kind of thing. But um, that people can go there and and look at what he, um, you guys are all about. But why don't you just tell me more about yourself and, and with our audience? Yeah, so I, I grew up in southern Utah, um, moved away to, to northern Utah and Idaho for a few years to do school, um, master's and or bachelor's, master's, and then doctorate degree up in Idaho. And ended up moving back just a couple months ago, largely because of the ranch. So this ranch started, man, kind of somewhere between fifty and hundred years ago. It's kind of it's kind of a little bit vague. But my great my great grandfather um, ranched down in southern Utah, um, ranched, farmed, um, had orchards, and then my grandpa and his brothers ended up buying land and splitting land between themselves out in this place just a little bit north of St. George area where our ranch is. Um, and they use that as summer range for their cattle. 
And um, my grandpa ran a cow-calf operation. So what that entails is you basically own the female cows, own some bulls. Um, those female cows have calves every year, and then you sell the calves. And those calves generally get sold to, you know, larger feed operations, some of the big meat packers who then raise, raise those cows and then make a profit when they sell the meat. And so, so that's the way that, that that operation worked. And then my grandpa passed away. Oh, it's been about 15 years ago now before. So probably for the last 20 years, he hasn't done, he didn't do much on the ranch. And we ended up just leasing the land out to someone else's cow-calf operation. And that's been going on, like I said, for probably about 20 years where, you know, they just pay a per head fee to use our grass. Basically, we irrigate, we maintain fences and they have their cattle out there. And my brother and I, so my brother, Paul, he's the, the co-owner of Hafen Beef. Um, this actually happened on an elk hunting trip just over a year ago. He came to Idaho to hunt archery elk with me and we had a six hour drive. And we started talking about the ranch and what we hoped it would be, what, where we hoped our place in it could be. And we realized, you know, we're just not making a lot of money. You know, we have about 100 acres and we make, you know, less than $10,000 a year from the lease. We thought, man, we should be able to make a little mm -hmm. more money on this um, for how much work we put into it. And so we started kind of thinking of ways we could do this. And our big motivation behind this is, man, we we love to hunt. We love the outdoors. We love wide open spaces. And I think a lot of people can relate in the context of the last few years in the housing market that a lot of these open spaces, especially out West, are just getting bought up. People love the beauty. Um, they love the area and they should. It's great. But a lot of these places that were once wide open spaces are now becoming kind of, I don't know, more, I don't know what you call it, but kind of this in between, you know, rural farms and there's ranchettes and we don't have those huge ranches. We don't have those huge wide open spaces anymore. And we thought, man, what can we do to, to bring ourselves a little more income to, that we can invest back into this land and that will give, you know, kind of that, that reason to keep this land open. We don't want to develop it, but what can we do to make it so it's, it's profitable so that selling it doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of kind of what got us started. And we found that the, you know, as we did as we talked about this and researched it, we to us the best way to do this was to just sell beef direct to direct to consumer, direct to customers, um, to people who wanted a quality, premium product um, that supported natural lands and supported land conservation. And so that's kind of what got us to this point in the last year. Wow. So since you made that decision, what are the changes you've made or, you know, how has that um, evolved with the ranch? Yeah. So there's not a ton of change at the ranch yet. We started out small this year. So we've had less than 10 head of cattle that, that we've sold this year. So we're still, we're still leasing out, we still have a lessee. Um, but the, the big change has been for me. So, I mean, I took a job, I kind of took a demotion um, definitely a demotion on my promotional career path to come down to Southern Utah, be close to family, be close to the ranch. Um, like I said, we had to invest some money in the ranch to get cattle and to set some things up. But it's been a really positive change, I think, for me and for my family. If we're talking, you know, about it personally, we've really enjoyed being back down here and being able to go out and, and work outside. Um, but what we're looking at is, you know, we'll see how things go next year. Um, and our business model, the way this works best for us is to pre-sell a lot of these beef shares. There's people put a deposit down on the beef 
um, several months in advance, and then we grill those beef for them. Um, so we'll see coming up this next spring season. Now that we've we've had a chance to really ramp up kind of our advertising and getting our name out there, we'll see what what our pre-sales look like. And our hope is that we we don't have to lease anymore; that we'll have um, we'll have a, a big enough demand that uh, we can just do our own thing and and have you know have more of that autonomy on the ranch this coming year. Did I miss how big your farm was? If you said that, it's, can you it's say about that again? nine. We're about ninety acres. Oh, okay. So we have probably about 60 acres of pasture and we irrigate maybe 20, 20 to 30 acres of that. And then we have just some, you know, like pinion juniper forested hillsides kind of on the edge of the valley there. Nice. So you're not huge. You're not like a ginormous ranch. 90 acres is manageable, right? Yeah. 90 acres sounds like much more manageable than these huge ranches. Yeah, it's nice. We, we don't, we don't have to hire anyone. We can do a lot of the work ourselves. Uh, which it's nice to keep it small and and keep it in the family. Cool. So before we get into the beef itself, um, I think it'd be great if you could just explain a little bit, kind of define for you guys what regenerative means. I think when we talk about this, this is kind of a, a word that's put out there, but maybe a lot of people don't actually understand what's being regenerated. How is it? beef different than like the conventional beef model and the you know and then also maybe what is the beef market like in the United States right now what what does that look like where are most people buying that you know how is their beef raised I guess is the question right yeah so regenerative and it's it's an interesting word especially like with agriculture and farming because it can mean a lot of different things and it's kind of become all the rage and so now people are trying to say the regenerative just to kind of get that label associated with, with what they do. And I take a really practical approach to this. Um, I don't get too technical into things. For me, regenerative is just managing your land in a way that doesn't require external inputs to make it profitable. And so, for example, like with cattle, we grow grass. We graze the cattle on the grass. If we do it sustainably, the grass will grow back the next year and the next year and the next year will keep coming back. And we'll have good grass for those cattle, you know, for as long as we do good management. If we have poor management, for example, if we put way too many cattle on the land for way too long of a time and they graze it too hard, we're going to start deteriorating the soil. Those, um, and the way that that can happen is if you graze off all the grass, there's no organic matter to go back into the soil. Um, and then your soil loses its nutrients. And you see this a lot in the West on, on public and private land. Uh, along streams, along riparian areas where the best grass is, where the cattle spend most of their time, um, you can start to see this happen where you don't get the grass growing back because it's been grazed too hard. Um, and so for us, you know, the biggest thing is to just graze the cattle on the grass. They leave, you know, they leave the leftovers behind, leave the manure behind, um, which provides some some organic matter to, to improve that soil. And then we move them before they hammer things too hard. Um, and as long as we do that, like I said, the grass just keeps coming back. It doesn't require any fertilizer to come in. It doesn't require massive land restoration. We just naturally are regenerating grass uh, every year. So that's kind of that's kind of the way I, I like to look at things. There's people who are going to give you way more technical definitions where you have to do this and you have to do this. But in my mind, regenerative means it regenerates on its own uh, without a whole lot of help. And so were you going to say something? Sorry. 
Oh no, I you I think you're going to go into probably what I was going to ask about what's actually the conventional model that most of our beef is coming from. Yeah, and so before we get there, I want to just make a quick distinction about grass-fed beef. Mm. Um, and with a lot of these terms around like regenerative agriculture and grass-fed beef, there is not a strict definition for this. And so we've had a lot of people tell us that all beef is grass-fed, which isn't wrong because it is the way the way the 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 model works for most of the U.S. is that there's cow calf operations like I, I talked about at the beginning. Those are the operations like a lot of times the big ranches in Montana, there's big ranches down in the south and the Midwest, um, Texas, there's there's big ranches all over the place. But but these big ranchers, they basically own cows. Um, they breed those cows and they produce calves and they make their money when they sell the calves. And they're selling those calves to generally um, some entity of, of these four big meat packers in the U.S. There's like Tyson, there's Cargill, there's, I can't remember the other two off the top of my head right now. But they own just a ton of meat growing and processing facilities in the United States. So they'll buy these cattle. So these cattle will be weaned. They'll, they've been eating grass for probably a month or two, or maybe they just got weaned when they went to, to auction or whatever. But those cattle were raised on grass for at least a couple of months. Their moms were raised on grass. Almost all the mother cows, all the cows in the United States, eat grass because it's too expensive to feed them grain and because it's not so great for their health. Um, the, so we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. Yeah. Um, so you want to protect your investment and feed it grass and not feed it grain. But but once those once those calves are sold, they'll they'll get into the feedlot system, and they'll generally be fed some kind of grain. Um, or soy product. Um, and the reason they do that is because it can be grown really quickly and really easily. Um, and then they 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 can fatten up quickly on that. So you're looking at from the from birth to butcher on a lot of these cattle, the call them industrial cattle, um, you're looking at less than 18 months, often 14 to 15 months um, to get a cattle from birth to a slaughter weight of around 1300 pounds. And that's because they can put on a lot of weight with grain. Um, and so the way these operations work is because you're feeding grain, you're bringing outside food in, you can pack, you know, hundreds of cattle, 100 to 300 cattle onto an acre. And so with these feedlots, these cattle are just packed in there because land's expensive, land's at a premium. The more cattle you can get, you know, per acre, the more you're saving on land costs. And it doesn't matter how many there are, because as long as you can bring in food to them, they don't have to eat the grass, right? So you just get these wastelands. These feedlots are just wastelands. If you've driven past one, it's just dirt and manure. There's nothing else growing there. Nothing else can grow there because of all those extra nutrients that come in from the manure. And in some cases, these cattle feedlots are actually a source of pollution in the streams and rivers because of all the manure that's there. And even though there are there are regulations for cleaning these things up and, and manure management and waste management and things like that, they're still, they can still be a source of pollution. Um, so that's where the majority of beef comes from. You go from the feedlot, they get butchered, they get sent to the grocery stores. Um, and so so that's kind of kind of what you're looking at. And so this is where maybe you have some more expertise than me, but but there's, it's really interesting as I've looked into this some, is just what cattle eat determines so much about the quality of the meat. Mm -hmm. um, and you look into just the fats, and I think that's where a lot of this comes from, is, and I think one thing that's going to be obvious to most people is grain-fed cattle have more fat than grass-fed cattle. 
Um, and I'll make one quick distinction here, grass-fed. I'm referring to grass-fed as the cow that eats grass its whole life. So some people are gonna tell you that grass-fed, if they eat grass at any point, they're grass-fed. You right. say they're grass-finished, if they eat grass for the last three to six months of their life. When I say grass-fed, I'm talking about 100% grass-fed cattle. Anything else yeah. I'm just referring to as grain-fed. You're not feeding them greater, grain or Skittles at any point in their life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Probably have the same nutritional value. I don't know. Is that a wise tale? I mean, I've seen videos of it on social media, but I just don't believe anything on social media anymore. I just don't know. But like I've heard dude, they're fed like candy and leftovers and just crazy carb, super carbs at the end. I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen any of that. And I haven't, I haven't heard of it. But like I said, our, our ranch community is pretty small. We just like grass is Grass yeah. is cheap in a lot of ways, but it's expensive. Yeah, the Skittles ways, will probably cost you, a truck full of Skittles <laughs> might cost you more than just the grass on your land. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some sweet beef. Yeah. Um, I have something to say about that because yeah. I think that in the American market and also around the world, marbleized beef is sort of a luxury. Like it's considered a delicacy in some places and definitely in the United States. Um and there's all, I am not an expert on beef types, but you know, there's Wagyu beef. There's, I believe those Wagyu is like, is it animals that are kind of kept in a small area? They they don't move around a whole lot. So they're kept so, tender. Yeah, the um, Wagyu or Wagyu, um, they're, yeah. they're a specific breed of beef that comes from Japan. Uh, um, and they, just their genetic characteristics, um, they marble, they get marbling more quickly really more fast than other beef okay breeds. so that's what i was going to talk about so sorry i didn't have that clarification but when you have marbled meat so when you're eating beef you're eating muscle meat right so you're eating the muscle when you have a marbleized steak which is good to us because fat um is tasty humans you know we we, we need fat for a reason we love the taste of fat it's very nutritious to the brain and to a bunch of other things, especially if you're like a children or reproductive women, you need a lot of fat to grow babies and like all this kind of stuff. But we kind of have a fat addiction in our culture, I would say in a lot of ways, and usually the bad fat. So yes, keto and like all that stuff, but, but that's different. Um, a marbleized steak is basically a diabetic cow because the fat has infiltrated the muscle meat. And if we were to turn this over to like a human and just in the lifespan of a human, as people get older um, or they become obese, um, which is happening earlier and earlier in our culture, right? Like there's children that are obese. Um, what happens is your fat because of your fat intake and your carbohydrate, your Skittles, your soda, your alcohol intake, your pastries, all that kind of stuff turns into fat in the body as well. Um, so eating those foods is almost just like eating fat. It, um, that fat marbleizes into your muscle tissue. And so what we see in people that are obese, people as they age, people that have diabetes, they have more of, um, they have weaker muscle, basically. They have less lean muscle mass. And that's because what starts to happen is the fat infiltrates the muscle tissue. Well, the negative part of that is that you need your lean muscle mass in order to move your skeletal system, right? So like to walk up a flight of stairs, you need your quads and your hamstrings and your calf muscles to be firing and to be 
contracting so that you can move your bones to go up the stairs, move your pelvis and all that. As you get older and you get this fat infiltrating into your muscle, you don't have the same muscle strength and you lose stability. So what's very common as people get older and they age, not just bone deposition changes, which is basically because you're having muscle changes, right? Um, in women, it's a little more complicated because of their hormonal structure. But if you get older, especially if you're older and heavier and you have more fat infiltrating your muscle, you're going to fall more. And then what happens when you fall, you like break a hip. And then if you break a hip, it's, that's hard to come back from, especially like when older women and men that fall and break a hip, um, that could be the end of their life basically be based on recovery. Right. So it's important to have lean muscle mass. That's not infiltrated with fat because that keeps you more, that keeps you stronger and more stable. Now fat is yummy though. So we're talking about beef. We're talking about growing a faster cow. Unlike these Wagyu probably, they just genetically infiltrate fat into their muscle, lean muscle tissue, which makes them just gain more and more weight. So they're kind of like obese cows, but their meat is very tender and very fat, right? I'm guessing that's what it is. So um, I tell people when they, you know, they, I just tell people, it's not bad that you're eating beef, but you probably want to be careful of the type of beef you're eating. And if it's full and infiltrated of fat in it, you're really just eating a diabetic cow. Yeah. Tell well, me I, if I'm wrong there. <laughs> no, I, you, you know more about this part of it than I do. So I'm, I, that's a, that's a great insight to have. And you know, the one thing that I've noticed, I've looked into this and, you know, take, take what I say here with a little bit of a, a grain of salt because, and I'll, I'll say why. And that's because scientific knowledge is built up, you know, one specific study at a time over many, many years. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of time for someone to know what's, you know, the base of that, the base of that scientific evidence. And so I've, you know, I've been reading a lot of the primary sources on this, but I have been doing it for a year, not for 10 or 15 or 20 years. So my knowledge will be somewhat limited. Um, but I can tell you kind of what I've, what I've gained from a lot of these studies. And feel free to chime in here, Hillary, because you know, you know, a lot of this metabolic and, you know, fat composition stuff way better than me. Um, but there's, we can break these fats down into kind of two basic categories. You have like omega-6s, which can be inflammatory, and omega-3s, which are heart healthy. And if you look at, at grain-fed cattle, there might be a ratio of 20, 20 to 1 for omega-6s. So you basically have 20 times more omega-6 fats in, in, in grain-fed beef than, um, than omega-3 fats. In grass-fed beef, you're looking at more like two to one. So we have mm -hmm. twice as many omega-6s to omega-3s, which is a huge, huge, huge difference. Yeah, um, it's huge. But if you look at the if you look at the actual human consumption of omegas, like you said, in the population, that's the norm, about 20 to 1. So if you've got a cow, if you're feeding people cows that are 20 to one and you wonder why the population is 20 to one. Now, of course, there's tons of other foods with high omega-6s that we eat in our diet, right? Like nuts and seeds right. and vegetable oils, which everybody should try to avoid like the plague. I mean, um, but those are all really high in omega-6 and they've, inf I mean, infiltrated, quote unquote, the food supply. 
And then you're eating cows who are eating a 20 to one and, and that's what you're eating. So I don't feel like it's rocket science to figure this situation out. It's like the old adage of you are what you eat. And if you're eating a cow, that's a 21 omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, then likely that's what you're going to experience. And of course, that correlates, we know with the research that omega-6 excessive consumption. Now, omega-6s are healthy. You need them. But this is where balance comes in. And I think that the dietary situation that we have in our culture right now is so unbalanced. And that's where we see these conditions come up. Obviously, diabetes is a huge imbalance. Um, cardiovascular disease is really common. It is partially imbalanced. There's a lot of complications to cardiovascular disease that we won't get into here, but cancers can be an imbalance, right? Cancers are cells that basically they get, um, they, they, they just start doing their own thing. Like they just start creating cellular replication and start doing things that the immune system is no longer able to do that. So that's an imbalance, right? Um, so if we think about the major like disorders that kill most Americans, it's an imbalance. And when you look at the food supply, it just is like almost, it is almost like correlation equals causation. And I hate to say it, but it is actually that when you just look straight across at the conditions that we suffer with versus what our animals are eating with the chickens and the beef and the pork and all these animals are eating and they're in their high inflammatory diets that kind of transfers to us as humans we're eating highly inflammatory diets right and again that balance is out of whack and um yeah that's how i see it yeah no i think that's great yeah and the other thing i'd add with with the fats is that the amount of fats in grass-fed beef is just overall lower than in grain-fed beef and you can look at it as part of well, what are the cows eating and what's their lifestyle like you know you have you know a thousand cows on 10 acres versus you have 30 cows on 100 acres right i can't even imagine that we have 10 acres we live on 10 acres if i had a thousand cows on this that would that would just be insanity like how does 10 acres support a thousand cows Okay, like, yeah. that's talk about imbalance. <laughs> that's just right. to me like my brain just sees automatic imbalance of nature <laughs> going on there, right? Like, yeah, that's enough. Yeah. And then I'd say the other the other thing with this is I don't know how how you can go and you can buy beef for you know four dollars a pound. Um, mm -hmm. if you look at what cattle prices are. And keep in mind that all these meatpacking companies are paying the same cattle prices. Um, they've come down a little bit the last few months, but you're looking at like $2 to $2.50 per pound for live cattle. That's not per pound of processed meat. That's per pound of live cattle. Um, so you still have to pay to feed those cattle, get them up to butcher weight. You have to pay for the butchering. Um, and then you have to pay for the transport and you have to pay for the markups in retail. So basically what that tells me is I haven't done the math on that whole supply chain. But if you're buying, you know, a cow, you know, you're basically you're paying $1,700 for a steer almost to any weight because those prices change by weight. So, you know, anywhere from 400, 800 pounds, you're almost paying the same amount for a cow, no matter what the weight is. So you're basically paying $1,700 for a steer. If you're going to get, you know, 
well, let's even make the math a little easier if I can do this in my head real quick. Let's say if you pay $1,600 for a steer and you get 400 pounds of processed meat off that steer when it's butchered. Um, you're looking that's at- That's $1,600. That, right? That's $4 a pound. So you basically right? made no money. You, you just basically paid made no to have money. that cow on your property and you, you, you actually made nothing. And that's ground Your beef. ROI is zero. You're going to pay more for steaks, right? But but what I'm saying is that break-even cost, if that whole cow was ground beef, your break-even cost is 1600 You paid that for the cow up front. Mm. Um, and that doesn't even count the cost of feed, which it costs, is, grain's expensive. It costs a lot of money to the grain to put the, to put the weight on the cow. So you're paying mm -hmm. for grain for almost a year, you know, five plus pounds of grain per cow per day, probably for almost a year to put the weight on them. And then you're paying, you know, for the meatpacking facilities, to, to get that cow broken down so it can be it can be bought. So you so logic tells me that a lot of a lot of these meat packers or a lot of these grocery stores, somewhere along the line, someone's losing money to get people into their stores. Right. Um yeah, and they're so, probably they're probably it I guess it would also depend on maybe where the where your market is. Like if if you're in a Bozeman, you can sell your meat for eight dollars a pound. But if you're right. in like Townsend, which you know, it's just a little town north of us here. They have one little like mom and pop grocery store. And that's the only place you can shop. And that place is serving probably most of the people that go in there to shop or we would call underserved population, they're rural underserved population. So you probably can't sell it for eight bucks. You're not going to sell it. And then it's going to go bad. Then it's a waste. So yeah. either on that end, those are the people losing money. Obviously the farmer's losing money because the farmer is not, that's, that's a really poor return on investment. I mean, who in the hell is going to start a business with that kind of ROI? Like nobody. So yeah. you're doing it now for the love of it or because you're stuck in it or because you're being subsidized by the government. Right. And yeah, or that's your life and your, that's your knowledge. And so you stay in that and you do what you have to, to make money, maybe not from the actual sale, but from the subsidy. Well, and this is why most ranchers do cow calf, right? Because right. you sell a calf, you get $1,600, right? You you know what you're getting. If you get into the meat business, right? You're trying to sell meat. Now you're competing with these companies that can sell meat at a loss to get people into buying other products, right? right? And so like just that example I just gave you with the $1,600 steer, you know, if that's all ground beef, you lose money, you lose a ton of money. Um, farmers and ranchers can't compete with that. Um, which is bad for the population because now you're feeding, you know, this industrial grain fed beef that's that's kind of rampant in our country. Um, so how do you break out of that? How how do you get beef that you know is good? How do you get beef that you know is is helpful? Well, you get you have to you have to know your rancher. I mean, you have to know where your beef comes from. There's, you know, there's you can go to, you know, you can go to Whole Foods, you can find 100% grass-fed beef, and, you know, that can be helpful. A lot of that beef is going to come from South America, it's going to come from New Zealand, from Australia, and if you're okay with that, great. Um, like, I also want to make a point, you're like, there's there's a need for affordable food in this country because there are people who can't who can't afford um, right. anything else, yeah, and sure. food, food's important. So I, if, if that's what you can afford, I don't want, I don't want you to feel like I'm saying you have to buy our beef. Like, do do what's right for your situation, but if you are looking for something um, that's higher quality, you don't know where to find it. You know, hopefully this can this can help you consider some of those things to make a decision on on where you can get that. Well, I feel I've, I I you know I 
I guess my idealistic viewpoint, not my realistic viewpoint, is that it's just unfortunate that in this day and time, we cannot be, with the amount of land that we do have in the United States, at least, you know, that we couldn't be creating this type of agriculture so that people in this country could, every single person could be eating healthy and affording it. We, it seems like we have that ability as far as land, as far as knowledge, as far as science, as far as like people that would, ranchers that would probably be willing to do it if the government was supporting that type of, of um, ranching. But my realistic brain is saying, you know, we need the cheapest we can get and get the top top dollar for the cheapest we can get. And we're just going to feed our population what's most affordable. And then we have, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I listen to some podcasts with, you know, men in this area that people have probably heard of, you know, Will Harris from White Oaks Pastures in Georgia. He's kind of been on the forefront of also trying to do regenerative farming in general and ranching. Um, Joe Salatin, a lot of people have heard him. These are guys that are kind of on the front lines of trying to get people to understand that buying this type of food and or if you are a rancher or a farmer, could you change your farm and your ranch to make it more sustainable for even just your community maybe not the larger people you know the whole country but like in your community could you create healthier food and the problem is is that realistically all the powers that be including the people like the people are the powers that be we have to rise up and be like okay first of all why does bill gates own most of the land in this country He's not going to do anything with it, like what you're talking about, right? And he's like, he's an investor in fake meat. And so that's kind of scary, right? And then we've got the government subsidizing situations where they're basically forcing ranchers and farmers to do, like you said, you either just sell cows to the feedlots or whatever, right? Because you can't make money otherwise. And we'll keep it in the corporate interest of these top three or four producers, so it's like every other industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the food industry, the meat industry, um, the chemical industry, like they're all, it's it's just like mass. And when people talk, it's like, it's so frustrating because when you, I hear this from you and if you think about all the major things that pollute, that destroy our health, that separate us, that politically divide us. These are all sort of meant that those big corporate entities, political entities, whatever you want to call it, they want to keep it that way because they are making tons of money. You know, the bottom line is money. And so we have the capacity. I just feel like we have the capacity in the United States to make sure that everybody, whether you're in a food desert or not, is getting access to these foods. But that's not happening because the reality is, is that the bottom line we can't meet the bottom line for these large corporate uh, large corporate greed basically is how i see it now this my idealism is like we should all be pitching into this and helping and if if each community knew their rancher they knew their farmer they were able to go to that you know but then i do think of like the person that lives in like 
the Bronx or Brooklyn and the inner city food deserts. And all they see is like meat is like McDonald's and fast food and all the fake food. And, and that's what they have. And like to, to climb out of that and to like create a garden and to go buy grass fed meat and go to their farmer's market every day, you know, there's financial resources that have to be put into that in the community. Like the people in the community there, they like need ranchers and farmers there that are coming into the inner city and giving people these options. And I'm sure at farmers markets and stuff, they do have that. But what I do like about this direct to consumer model that you're talking about is that then opens the door for these people who don't have access to land or to a farmer or rancher. So if you can keep your beef somewhat affordable, you know, and not still make an investment, keep it somewhat affordable, and then cut out a lot of the like middle people that are taking that, right? They're taking that profit and like the grocery store owner's not making anything because he's just got to sell this meat now. Like if you can cut that out and sell direct to consumer, can we make this a more viable option for people everywhere? Not just like wealthy people that live in Bozeman or live in Salt Lake or, you know what I mean? So. And that, yeah, that's really our hope. And well, our our prices, we we can be competitive with with places like Whole Foods with with a similar product. We might not meet their prices exactly, and to be honest, we're going to give you a better product because our beef, like it's raised in the U.S. hundred yeah. percent. It's all sourced from the U.S. Either we raised ourselves or we sourced it from producers around us, so we can get we can tell you where it's been, how it's been treated. Um dry aged if you're not familiar with dry aged beef uh mm. just go go take a look at the quality you get out of that you lose water weight it concentrates flavors um you just get a better more tender product um and we can ship to most of the western united states we ship we, we can ship nationwide we ship to most of the western u.s for free um mm. and and we can get you that at, at roughly the same price you're going to pay for something at whole foods you know depending a little bit on things. And the thing, the other thing we can do is we can get you bulk beef. So you can take that whole, that whole foods price and you can pay it for a whole cow. Basically you can get a half cow, um, for 14 50 a pound delivered to your door, um, for wow. free. If you're in the Western U S and if you're not in the Western U S or you're outside of our free shipping areas, then you can pay to have it shipped to you. Um, and so that's, that's what we're really trying to do is we're trying to kind of make that accessible to people. And like I said, I want to kind of go back to what I said at the beginning and you, you brought it up with land and, and land conservation is, and like I said, I'm, I'm a hunter. I'm going to get back to hunting just a little bit here. Yeah. And you look at places throughout the West, you look at places, um, Colorado front range, uh, Wasatch front in Utah, Bozeman area in Montana, Boise area in Idaho, um, where we've seen a lot of development, a lot of houses, um, these places in the Wasatch Front, I used to drive up and down the Wasatch Front when I was a kid, you know, a couple of times a year. And over the last 30 years, places, you know, south of Salt Lake, between Salt Lake and Provo, south of Provo, between Provo and Payson, they used to all be farms and ranches, and now it's all houses. Mm -hmm. So you think about the topography of these areas and what the wildlife populations are doing. They're right next to mountain ranges. You know, they get a lot of snow. Some of the best ski resorts in the country are along the Wasatch Front. It's a ton of snow. What are those deer and elk doing in the winter? They're not living up in six to 10 feet of snow. You know, they were coming down to those foothills, which are now all houses, right? Before they were farms. 
and there was some tolerance for for wildlife there but now it's all houses if there was tolerance for wildlife there's nowhere for they wouldn't come there's nowhere for them to be there's no food for them um and so you just look at what this is doing to some of our wildlife populations and you look at mule deer declines in the west in recent years and a lot of that's attributed to drought and severe winters mm. um and you just think about it, if you get a if you get a drought heavy summer where there's little feed up in the high country and subsequently probably lower feed in the low country and then you get a really hard winter that forces all those animals down to the low country where before development there might used to be some feed available for them now there's nothing where do they have to go for food you know there's nowhere to go and you know although leopold who's considered the father of wildlife management wildlife conservation i can't remember the exact focus something like that on wildlife management he talked about how private lands would determine the fate of wildlife in this country and you can see that playing out right now in a lot of these developed areas in the West, how as we grow and we we have a desire for recreation to be close to these natural beauties. Um, and you and I are part of that, right? We live in areas like that yeah. Um, yeah. for great reason. But we just really have to consider how those decisions are affecting one, like one, the wildlife and the land, and two, um, how that impacts the food landscape in our country as far as as uh, you know, as far as industrial or or domestic meats. Um, and those two have a really big interplay together. And the second thing is, how does that affect recreational tourism, right? So you, you start developing these areas that, that have a lot of natural beauty. And now in a lot of places, the only thing that has any natural beauty left are the federally owned lands. Anything that was privately owned has been bought up and developed. Um, and that's going to have that's going to have an impact on tourism as you force more and more people into these smaller areas. Um, they become more crowded, and you have you have other impacts on the land there. Um, and so that's just considering all these things. This is part of why, like I said, a, a huge motivation for us is to keep the land as natural as possible. Now we're not talking. You know, we have to make a profit on this land still. Otherwise, it's going to get sold eventually. And right. so you can argue that cattle pastures aren't 100% natural. And I would totally agree with you, but they're a whole lot more natural than, you know, 10 ranchettes on 100 acres. They're a whole yeah. lot more natural than a subdivision. Um, we still have deer come down. We have coyotes in our fields. Um, we have snakes. We have, you know, rodents. Um, we have willows in the riparian areas. We still have a natural stream there. And so there's a lot of things that, that this beef can support uh, when you look at it from a perspective like that as well. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's such a dichotomy, right? Is like, if you have the resources to live somewhere like where we live, like we live on 10 acres, you know, three parks, Montana, outside of Bozeman. Um, we're just so blessed. I mean, we're so blessed to have the resources to live somewhere like this, but we live in an area that was all farming. So it was notorious, like all wheat farming. And just over the decades, um, wheat Montana, they're the largest wheat producer in Montana. They've just so, sort of sold off over the years. And, and, and they were like, I think they were an accumulate, they were a co-op of a lot of different farmers that own land and stuff. And and now they're more of a, they have their wheat farms, but they have, you know, a big restaurant. They sell their bread all over the the place. And that, so they're kind of like a destination place in our area. But the land we live on was farmed for I don't know how long. And we've got yellow grass and we've got tons of tumbleweed, but you can tell it was over farmed. Like the, the soil is clay. I cannot grow 
I have to have bring soil in and we have to have boxes. It's very like trees here. We we planted aspens and all these, and it's gonna be 30 years before one of those trees is like my mom who lives in Bozeman at the base of the mountains. She just has aspens just sprouting up everywhere because her soil is completely different than our soil. So I can kind of see what over farming did to this ecology here, what it's done to the grasslands, what, you know, there's no, we have our dogs and now we have goats, you know, they're like out there, but like, there's no big cows out here. There's no ranches. So there's none of that going on. And I can see that. And, you know, to think that we have the resources to own 10 acres outside of Bozeman, we're super fortunate and people want to live like that. And who doesn't blame people for wanting to get out of the rat race like we lived in um we did have really good soil where we lived though and I do miss it and Washington was like just the garden of Eden you could just grow things like annuals would come back every year you know things would were it was just a it was very proliferative let's put it that way just based on the soil and the environment which we don't have here Montana's a harsh environment but if you go 30 minutes towards Bozeman or you go up there they've got topsoil that's five feet deep and depending on who had that land and took care of it your growing season's very short but you can you have very you know the soil can differ but I just see it like because I grew up in this area when I was a kid and most everything was farms farms like um there was the town the small town but everything in between every little town just farms and and I actually now I drive around Bozeman and I get so nostalgic for when I was a little kid and there was just this feeling of like expansiveness that it had. And I was, I did not grow up on a farm. You know, we were, I was a city dweller. My mom, we lived in town and <clears throat> we weren't ranchers or anything, but like a lot of my friends lived on ranches. They had horses, they, you know, they had cattle. And I just remember that feeling of expansiveness. And when you went out in the mountains, you never saw people and it was so kind of raw and wonderful. And now you go somewhere and there's literally like a hundred cars at a trailhead and you drive around downtown and there's just so many people and people are rude and they drive like, because if you lived in a city, you know the difference. You just know the difference. Cities make people crazy. I'm sorry to say it. They do. They make people mean. They make them cranky. They make them like unsociable. They, it's weird. You would think it'd be the opposite because there's so many people together, but it just makes people sort of like... I don't know. And in, in the small town, it's so different. And I just, I feel sometimes like these places, these wild places, they're just going to be lost because people want to get out of that craziness. They want to feel that feeling of expansiveness and like they want to feel relaxed and calm and be able to live somewhere where it's quiet. And it's not noise polluted and sound polluted. But then when you just start bringing so many people in, it just kind of slowly turns into that. And then developers see the the profits, the money. How many houses can I build on this little farm that will make me, especially in this area, so much money, you know? And so it's this, it's like the human condition of wanting more and needing more and, and but also wanting things we can't have, you know, wanting to live someplace that has this appeal, but then changing it and turning it into what we came from. And um, I guess it's like that all over the world. But the the beauty about America, North America, I think having traveled around the world is that we do have so much vastness. We have so much land, especially in this middle part, that we could be utilizing 
to benefit our population and to be feeding our population like amazing food. People don't need to be sick in this country. I don't understand why it is like this. And I guess it goes back to greed. But if anybody's listening to this podcast, and I feel like people feel helpless about their health sometimes. They feel like they don't have choices. They have to eat this food. They, they can't afford the $14 beef. But then I see what people spend their money on too. Like <laughs> you probably could afford that healthy food if you sacrifice some other things that aren't very healthy for you, you know? And I think um, that's the hardest thing. So what I love is like having a place like you have also doing education for people. You know, this may be something for you guys in the future, bringing these future farmers out, bringing these kids. That's what I love about hunting and fishing in, in the community. And I, I think it gets such a bad rap in the, at the, the society at large hunting because there is this aspect of dying but but maybe you can talk about that the vast benefit of the environment of like and when our environment is healthy like how it helps people throughout their lives so bringing children and teaching them about the soil teaching them you know what are the, what are the vast benefits of the environment for this type of farming or ranching yeah and i i think we've touched you know on some of those already and I think, you know, a big thing that, that we hear is, you know, in the political political arena a lot lately and in science a lot um, is climate change. And, you know, whether you believe in climate change or don't, I, it doesn't matter. We can call it, you know, we can call it more droughts, more rain, whatever it is. More pollution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The climate's changed throughout history. That's undeniable. And, you know, the cause of it now, we can argue about that, but we don't, we don't need to, it doesn't get us anywhere. But the point is, is that the way we affect the environment has effects on the climate as well. Um, and like I said, that's, that's happened, that's happened throughout the history of the world. And, you know, the things humans do have, have impacts on that. And the, the beef you choose to, to eat and the way beef is raised has impacts on that. So if we, if we think about industrial beef, you know, that food's coming from outside sources. You're getting things like corn, soybeans, wheat, grains. Those are all annual plants. You plant them every year. You harvest them every year. You transport them every year. Um, so think about all the work that goes into just making food for those cattle. How many truckloads have to get driven from point A to point B to feed those cattle? How many times do you have to go around the field to plant the crops or to harvest the crops or repair the soil? You know, how, how does all that work? And then you go and you look at grass-fed cattle. Um, I've been on a tractor all year. Um, the grass grows. You know, we irrigate it. We walk around, we irrigate our fields, um, which, you know, we have water rights. We pull water out of a stream. That's going to have some impacts as well. But, um, but you know, and then you think about, okay, well, if, if climate change is an issue and if we're putting too much carbon into the atmosphere, we need places to pull that carbon out of the atmosphere. Can a feedlot do that? No, it can't. What happens when you have annual plants, you know, you they, they pull carbon out and then you harvest them and then you have to put carbon back out of the atmosphere to plant them again. Whereas this grass, it, it grows back every year naturally. Um, and so you have things like that. I talked about pollution before with, with the feedlots, right? You just have this dirtscape or manurescape, whatever you want to call it. When rain hits that and it runs off to the nearest drainage, it's pulling all those nutrients with it. You have cows on grass and on pastures that grass really slows down the spread of nutrients. You get a lot more infiltration into the soil. Those nutrients can be good and go back to, to growing the grass. But when you don't have grass to grow, those nutrients can seep down in the groundwater. They can seep into surface water. Um, you know, they, they, don't have, they don't have a place to go. 
uh, and then you just you just think about the way it looks and the aesthetic the aesthetics of it it looks pretty to go see a nice green valley in the mountains mm -hmm. um it does not look so nice to go see a feedlot um anywhere I, I don't care where it is the feedlot does not does not look nice mm -hmm. um and so i think there's a lot a lot of environmental and aesthetic benefits uh to this like i said the it the thing the thing with grass-fed beef is it takes a lot of space. Like I said we're we're at two to three acres. It takes us two to three acres to grow a grass-fed cow, um, as opposed to like I said one one hundredth of an acre or one tenth of an acre somewhere in that range to grow a grain-fed cow. And so that's where a lot of the costs occur. You know, there's property taxes. There's there's managing the land. There's fences. There's irrigation. There's all those kinds of things, um, which which do have an impact on the price of the beef and also on the landscape. Right. Wow, so interesting. Um, I also had a question too about just kind of the whole plant-based diet thing and like what would it look like if we didn't have ruminants like cows on the in the ecology? Like I think there's this idea that if we don't eat these animals, then these animals won't exist. Like they there won't be a need for these animals right and then these animals won't be destroying the environment but what does happen if we don't have these ruminants i mean obviously prior to colonization we had the buffalo right where they were a massive ruminant that was roaming the land in the millions and they were doing some damage to the land but they also obviously had a benefit to their regeneration of the land and then we have elk and deer and moose and you know we have all kinds of ruminants all over that are creating benefit for um the environment and the land but as humans we have this idea okay like if we're not eating these animals then do they need to exist and if cows are not natural to the north america um would it be more beneficial to just get rid of them? And, you know, what, what would that look like in today's world? I, I think it would just look like more houses. <laughs> I think that's what would happen. Like we talked about no cows. No. Well, let's just build developments, but what, what would it yeah, look like no. without these ruminants? I think you're right. I mean, you make a good point about bison, right? Ecologically, like they were, they were native species here and they're gone now. And a lot of the range is taken up by, you know, um, commercial agriculture now. Um, but you think in a lot of ways, cattle can fill the niche of bison. Um, and you look at, you look at that, I mean, you just look at it in general, and we can think about it kind of as disturbance, right? Those bison that mm -hmm. come in, they graze nearly, it's a disturbance. They also put things back in, they put the manure back in, they turn the soil up, they can push seeds into the ground. You know, there can be a whole lot of different things that they do. Um, and I want to, it's just so we think things would go back to the way they were, but they never can. Um, there's been so much development and so many changes to the land that are just irreversible. Where take take decades to centuries to millennia to reverse the right. the changes we've made are so substantial that we just can't go back to the way things were. Um, one really interesting thing that that I, I read a couple of weeks ago is if if you live in the West, you're probably somewhat familiar with cheatgrass. Um, if you're not, I'll give you the, the quick rundown. So cheatgrass is an invasive grass um, from Asia. Uh, what it does is it can germinate really early in the year. So it'll often start growing under snow. And that's bad for native grasses because it's gonna start taking up nutrients before those native grasses start their germination and start 
and start sprouting. And so cheatgrass can dominate because it has that competitive advantage. Now, when it gets really bad, is that cheatgrass that grows quickly, then it dries out really quickly. And so it becomes a fire hazard. And so areas with cheatgrass start burning more frequently, which mm -hmm. is bad for native plants because they don't get a chance to reestablish. Cheatgrass loves disturbance. So after a fire, it can repopulate really quickly. And you're kind of stuck in this positive feedback where you get cheatgrass and it burns and you get more cheatgrass and more cheatgrass and more cheatgrass mm -hmm. until all you have is cheatgrass, which has limited uh, forage, nu forage um, nutrition for, for deer, elk, native species, cattle, any species. So there's been a lot, there's been billions of dollars invested into, into getting rid of cheatgrass in the West or to, to preventing its spread. Um, some, a somewhat recent study found that cattle grazing in the fall reduces the cheatgrass seed bank and can help keep it at bay in a lot of areas. And so that gives you an idea of something like bison could have done in the past. I mean, cheatgrass probably wasn't here when bison were, but if there were undesirable species, that grazing could have potentially knocked them back and brought forth those more palatable species, the ones mm. that were, were better for animals, for the environment, um, for fire suppression, whatever it may be. And so that's kind of one one ecological point where cattle can be useful. There's there's another um, weed, this is more of a riparian weed, I wouldn't call it a weed, but plant called Phragmites. Um, and there are native Phragmites and invasive Phragmites. And if if you're around wetlands, it's those really, I can't, how to explain it, really, really tall stalks um, with kind of those wispy, wispy leaves on them. It grows really, really thick. And it, it's native. But in a lot of places, natively, it's usually four to five percent of, of riparian vegetation. Um, around the Great Salt Lake, there's places where there's just these huge stands of Phragmites, and it's the only thing. You have a monoculture of Phragmites, and it instead of offering diversity and cover, there's nowhere else for you know water birds to go or or other riparian riparian animals to to find habitat. And one way they knock that back is by grazing cattle on it. Mm -hmm. um, so if you intensively graze that Phragmites for a couple of years, um, or if you burn it or or use mechanical removals and then get cattle on it, they can keep they can keep that at bay and they can knock it back. Um, and then you're not using things like fire or machines to do that. And you're kind of getting that ecosystem back to what it was using a non-native animal, but an animal that also has a benefit for society. Um, and so like I said, I don't there if you get rid of cattle and you you remove the demand for meat or for beef, then you're also removing the demand for some of these things that can actually help the environment in a lot of different ways. The other thing I'd point out is if we talk about a plant-based diet, you know, plant-based meats, like we're talking about balance, like why not just eat the plants? Like why are you making meat out of plants? Why not just eat the plants in the first place? <laughs> I don't and, know. I don't know. And then know. we're introducing all these other I don't know. Chemicals well, you're just adding a bunch of chemicals and sugar. Yeah. And like, if you're plant-based and you don't want to eat cow, then why do you want to eat a burger? Like, exactly. it's, it's just this, it's, it's the idea. It's such a strange idea to me. Like, just eat the plants. You don't need to put these burgers together with all these fillers and all this stuff. And like, you know, what is in the burger? Could you just make that stuff and, and not eat it? I, yeah. I think it's really important to realize, um, especially in the context of the, of the United States, at least that, that food and ecology are really tightly connected mm. and are just getting more tightly connected with, with the more that developments put pressure on our food systems and our ecological systems. Um, and so I think it's important to realize that the decisions you're making 
whatever they are can have positive and negative influences for one or the other and both. And just to hopefully, my hope is that by talking here, we at least bring some of those, bring some of those considerations up and people think about it a little more. Um, maybe, maybe you're not in a position to change the way you do, or maybe there's other reasons you have the beliefs you do. And that's, that's, that's great. And that's fine. Um, but I just want people to be like you said, education, right? We want people to be educated and to realize that decisions we make are going to affect the, the things we love, um, and to make decisions, you know, in an educated manner so that we're not doing something we think is good for the environment. And, you know, 10 years down the road after we've advocated for it and we find out that actually that was a really bad thing to be doing. Um, and some of those things we're just not going to know until they happen, but I think there are yeah. some things that we can, we can keep an eye on and and take actions, you know, to prevent some things down the road if if we just know what's going on. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, again, not to be a negative Nelly, I think that positivity is really important. And that's what's going to bring change. And we need to realize that we all really have the same basic needs in life. And one of them is good nutrition. It's really important for the health of a community to have good nutrition. And when you see communities that are really struggling and people in general, even in your family unit, you know, if you have a, your nuclear family, everybody's got somebody in their nuclear family who may be struggling um, either physically, emotionally, mentally. And kind of where I always start with people is like, what is the, what is the life of the food you're eating? Like where, you know, where is the food coming from and how nutritious, it, nutritious is it for you? And that can also help to go so far in improving all these different states of health in our body. And then I think when you have communities that are healthier that way, then that just kind of reverberates out into the bigger thing of like creating more balance um, in, in uh, our communities. And I think the U U.S. is a struggle because the U.S. is such a big country and we have so many vast different types of people and so many vast different types of cultures in this country and, and even environments, right? Like the environments just within the United States are insane. Um, Cause I can be sitting here in October freezing cold and go to Florida and like be laying in my bikini and like go to California and be like, you know, it's, it's so vastly different in this country. So um, I think, but everything really does start with nutrition, everything. I mean, the moment a baby is born, what is the first thing they do? They eat, yeah. they yeah. eat milk. Yeah. That is the foundational piece of your physical, mental, and emotional health is your diet. So tell me how people can get your beef, what that looks like for them. Um, we did talk about the cost a little bit. It sounds really affordable. Um, and then, uh, yeah, like just share how people could get their pre-sale on that beef. Yeah, so... Go to hafenbeef.com. Um, if you go to hafenbeef.com forward slash sign up, one word, S-I-G-N-U-P. Um, if you sign up for email list at that specific link, uh, you will get a discount code, a good for good for a one-time discount. Um, our beef shares, so our bulk beef, um, those deposits are really seasonal. So we'll we're we're out right now. Um, we're delivering those deposits, or we're delivering the beef in November. It's you know middle of October, so in another month we're delivering those those beeves. Um, and we'll have deposits open up again for, you know, beef about a year from now, they'll open up about in March probably. Um, okay. so if you're on our email list, you'll get notifications about, about that. Um, 
and you'll get some probably some special incentives when we launch that as well. You will do some giveaways associated with our beef deposits. And then you'll get information just about the ranch, about what we're doing, about everything that's going on. Um, like I said, I, I like to learn about this stuff. So you'll probably get some rants from me about things we talked about on the podcast from now and then as I, as I learn <laughs> something new. Um, but yeah, havenbeef.com, the website and the email list are kind of where we have all our information. That is so awesome. I I just love talking to people that are work really hard to change, like change their change their world, change the world to um to do acts of service. Cause I do see people in your situation at this point, you are doing this out of acts of service to help people because this is really hard work. Um it's not very it's not like you said, it's not a huge money-making effort. Um, you are thinking forward, which a lot of people don't do, right? They're not thinking ahead to what the impacts are going to be. And so you and um, your brother, is that what you said? Yeah, my or brother. My, your brother? My, my dad does a lot of the work too. Oh, so see um, your whole family and you guys yeah. are thinking forward. You're thinking ahead to your future generations, which is so 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 important especially a very um as far as acts of service because we can just consume and consume and consume in our life right now but you know we're not going to be here forever and our ancestors who come after us you know they're going to be left with what the ideas and all the things that we implement um now and so being able to look forward um that is, it's commendable, really, because. I, 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 say, I just want to add one. <laughs> tell us one what you, how, that... why don't you tell us what you do in your real life? <laughs> well, okay, just a minute. I want to add you one have thing a doctorate? Kind of... Did you say yeah. you have a doctorate? Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, let me say one thing first. And so my grandpa owns some land down in St. George as well. So our ranch is a little ways north of St. George. Okay. And when I was really young, like I was probably two years old or something, maybe just a little older, he sold a huge chunk of land um, and kept part of it. And the mm. land that he sold is now a golf course and multiple <gasps> subdivisions. Oh. And I'm sure he had his reasons. He was getting old. He wanted to retire, wanted, you know, financial security for his family. And I don't, you know, I don't fault him for that. But I just look at that and I'm like, man, what could have been if this just wouldn't have been sold? Um, if he would have just been able to keep this, um, what would things look like now? And there was another another smaller portion of that land that was around till I was maybe 10, 10 years old or so that had an orchard on it and a little bit of pasture. And I remember walking over there with him and crossing the creek and, you know, checking on the fruit trees and the pasture and things. And then he sold, he sold that as well. And I mean, it got a lot for an old man to manage, I think was a big part of it. His, yeah. his kids didn't have time to help with all that. And, and he was nearing retirement. So I understand why he did it, but just seeing what that turned into, um, like you said, looking forward, it makes me realize what things are going to turn into if we don't find a way to prevent it. And so that's, you know, that's what a lot of this comes back to is how can we find a way to keep these things at least as they are and hopefully make them better. Yeah, um, that's great. Anyway, back back to yeah, the, so, what I do in my in real life. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I, I do have a doctorate. My, my background's in, so my my bachelor's in, is in wildlife and fishery science. Um, so I mm. wanted to be a wildlife manager. And then I got into ecology for a master's degree and water resources for a doctorate degree. So I worked a lot with research in natural systems Jeez. and ecological systems and, and all that. Um, so it kind of gives kind of a fun background <laughs> with, with um, 
with the ranching and my my dad's a water rights attorney so we always have some fun discussions about yeah. you know property rights and water rights you know versus ecology and, and all those kinds of things that just complicate we, we get into that it just complicates things even more than the economic side of things we talked about and it gets into the poly it, it's just a crazy system we have but uh it's kind wow. of fun to see it from multiple angles so see you have background in all this this is like why you're so passionate about it because you really spent also a lot of time and money to educate yourself to on these topics you know um and yeah that's that's super commendable getting a doctorate is not easy so <laughs> um you know you know what it's like I'm sure I know people are always like do you want to go back to school I'm like are you crazy no I I, I mean I, I like know. to learn what I want to learn I do not want to go back to school for any amount my student loans were you know uh as of this year I no longer have student loans oh, uh good. which I paid on for over 20 years oh man so that is like um you know my idea now of college anymore is it's probably just a good idea to be really passionate about something that you do want to spend that much time and money on um, because of the expense, like the expense of college is so crazy. Now, I don't even know how people are doing it now. I mean, I graduated from my doctorate in 2007 and it was so expensive back then. I just can't, these kids must be getting out of school now with like twice the amount of debt that I had. And I had to pay on my loans for over 20 years. Um, yeah. And uh, I just, you know, I just don't know how you ever get out. How would you, how would you ever get out of that cycle? So to me, you know, I get a lot of questions about school. Should, you know, should, do you recommend kids go to college or whatever? And I'm like, I think kids, I think people should go to school when they've maybe lived a little life and they have some passion or maybe, you know, maybe you have that right when you're 18, you know, you, you want to go, you're going to do it. But you know, statistically, how many kids go to school at 18 and take those four years or those eight years and then actually use that in their career? Like they may not, you know, and um, but I I do. I think that it's beneficial and it's something that you can be passionate about. And obviously you're going to really be able to use what you've learned um, here on the ranch. You may end up becoming a rancher, a beef rancher. And, you know, having that background and what you know is going to help you probably make better decisions uh but yeah schooling is an interesting thing today I think that it's a different world than when you and I went to school probably um, yeah I I was on a lot of research assistantships so I didn't pay for any of my <clears throat> graduate school otherwise I, wow, that's it wouldn't great. have been worth it and that's resources it's not worth it you don't never make back the money you spend on school no. working for the government or or things like that so yeah I I I don't like I said it's it's an expensive endeavor that or you got to have rich parents so I tell my yeah. kids they're like should we go to college I was like for, get a scholarship yes <laughs> if you don't get a scholarship no and figure out what you want to do and then I will consider helping you pay for it but like I know what you're doing in college at 18 and it's not really caring about your major so I don't really want to pay for that. You could go out in the world and get a job and have those experiences without me having to pay for it. So I don't right. know. I'm a little biased on that now, probably because I've been through it. But uh, it's well, a different world today, too. I mean, you can be so creative now. Like the yeah. things people are doing and making livings off of, they don't have any schooling. And I think we're going back to this apprentice shape, apprentice style education. And this is how it used to be, right? It's still like this in a lot of the world where you kind of decide what you want to do. And then as you go into that, like you, you focus on that, you know, you don't have to take like 
10 electives that literally have nothing to do and you're never, you know, if you're going to be like a chemist, do you really need to be taking English literature? Like, give me a break. Like, you're never going to use that, you know? Um, so I think that as the internet explodes, as it has exploded, it's created the ability for you to have any information you want. I don't even know how professors teach in today's world with the stuff that we have now, the access. I mean, just even chat GPT. Are you kidding me? How yeah. do te it's it's so got to be so much for um, teachers today, but I feel like we we could start going back to this like apprenticeship style model where people are going in they're learning what really interests them and they I think the original idea was to have people be well rounded, like it's good to have kids be well rounded so you shouldn't just learn chemistry you should learn English literature and you should also learn like accounting or like whatever. But now I think we're starting to see, like, I feel like that's a money grab. That's just like, yeah. ooh, we're just going to take that money. And now people are starting to wake up to that. I think because we have so much information at our fingertips, you you can really learn. I mean, geez, I could learn to play piano on YouTube if I wanted to. Oh, yeah. Now, you know, um, so I do think it's a different day and age. Uh, but hopefully we're going to see people probably being even more genius in what they're good at. I think this newer generation, we're, we're going to see that. We're going to see lots of very smart people going into areas that and, and that interest them without having to have all the extra noise in the background. Um, but yeah, I think it's commendable going into ranching. And honestly, I think Ryan would probably do it if we didn't, you know, he'd just have to... <laughs> He'd have to be around. He wants to be in the mountains, like managing a bunch of cows on property. Like he, he just wants to be out in the mountains. Um, so it's kind of where he goes, but anyways, so, um, all right. Any last words of wisdom to leave with our listeners today? I think this was a great podcast, man. Yeah. I it's yeah. Thanks for having me on. I don't, I think I've imparted all the wisdom that I have and probably some I don't have. Um, which may not be counted as wisdom. I don't know. <laughs> um, I impart all kinds of wisdom that nobody cares about. <laughs> Let me tell you. It's it's just great to be on and talk about this. And like I said, I I really hope that if nothing else, this provides some awareness and or lets you know where you can get some beef if you're looking for if you're looking for some quality beef. Um, we're always open to any inquiries or any questions you might have. Um, uh, yeah, and I appreciate you having me on and appreciate the, like you said, the balance. I appreciate the podcast for the balance you have that kind of incorporates mm -hmm. a lot of the the health, the harvest and the hunting, right? Kind of all those things that, that we do in our lives that, that impact us and the, the world around us. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I'm glad you reached out. Uh, sometimes that's just all it takes is just reaching out, you know, uh, and uh, great. Well, I hope everybody, hafenbeef.com, go there, get your beef for next year get on the wait list. Uh, and like, I, we love beef because we never get beef in our house. So I don't know. I might have to consider this myself as well. Man, I, so I didn't, I didn't eat beef partly because it was expensive and partly yeah. because we had elk or deer or yeah. bear or whatever in the freezer for a few years. And then we moved down here. I didn't hunt this year because I didn't want to pay for non-resident tags. And um, I have no, all I have had is beef. And I'm like, man, this is really good. I haven't had this in four or five years. Like, this is really good stuff. And so we we actually bought a brisket from the store because it was it was on a really good store. We did, we just needed to try this. Like, we need to see what yeah. it's like. And I thought I wouldn't be able to tell a difference. To be honest, about it's just beef. Like, I'm not going to tell a difference. Right. There was a noticeable 
it was noticeably bland. It just didn't have, it just didn't have flavor. And I was like, whoa, yeah. this grass-fed beef, there's, there's stuff to this, you know? Like, I mean, it's a good thing because that's what we're doing, but um, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's probably, you know, the whole idea too is like, you know, farm, farm to table, like the process, like you said, all this unsustainable stuff that has to get the meat to a person's plate. Like, just think it's the same thing, like banana, you know, they got to pick them when they're like super green to get yeah. them to somebody when they're super yellow. And then it's like, is that even changing the nutritional quality of these bananas when you're picking them when they're super green, right? Like, I feel like it's that kind of thing, like the more relevant close something is to you, like, right, you got it right there. Just like when you eat your fresh elk or, you know, something yeah. like that. We notice that in our house a ton. And this, this year at the summits, um, one of our summits, we had um, uh, Ty Stubblefield. He quit his day job and everything and moved to Eastern Montana and bought a bunch of bison and has a bison ranch now. Uh, which again is a commendable endeavor because man, it is a ton of work for not a lot of money. There's a dream there, you know, there's a dream to change that. And he was nice enough to bring a buffalo that was going to be going to slaughter and he brought her and we we harvested her at the summit and Joel Turner broke her down in front of the whole group, you know, to help guys understand how to do the gutless method, how to break it down, how to utilize it, get all the pieces out. Um, that was very educational and we use that meat at every meal for the rest of the, you know, the guys made brats right there, fresh meat made brats. Uh, we had burgers, we had steaks, we had stews. I made bone broth. We sawed the bones up and we made fresh bone broth. And that was like, that is so amazing to have that literally that animal that was alive and within hours to be making food out of that animal. And I just think that that is the appreciation for hunting or for that a lot of people don't have. They don't understand that. They're just used to buying that meat in a grocery store. So they're so far removed from the experience of what that nutrition, what that animal, that nutrition, that animal is bringing to them. And when I have those experiences where we are so fortunate to have that animal or to have the elk Ryan brings home or the moose or the antelope or whatever, like the reverence for that, I think people don't want to eat meat and they think it's, it's ethically unmoral because they've never had that experience, you know? And they and haven't gone I don't... through the work it takes to turn that no. into food. It's no, like you, part of, you know, like I said, I watch, I watch Ryan and I watch, you know, Brian Gritty and, yeah. and I, I really appreciate, they, they almost, and I, I kind of feel this too, they almost have like this need, like if we're going to kill something, we have to work ourselves to death to get it, right? <laughs> that's because Ryan's that's philosophy. Because, <laughs> because that's what it deserves, right? That's what it yeah. deserves. It deserves nothing less than a lot of effort. And when I hunt, like the, my least favorite part of hunting is from when I shoot to when I find that animal on the ground and can start breaking it down. I hate it. I just, I hate that part of hunting. I hate the killing and I hate the not knowing if it was a clean kill. Um, I enjoy the adventure part and I enjoy the work of getting the animal out and breaking it down and making food out of it. That in between, that's the part that just, I don't like it. But yeah, I also like, feel like it's the best alternative for the animal in a lot of ways. But it is like in anything general. in life. Like, life does not come without suffering. Yeah. Have you ever, do you have children? Yeah. We have three kids. Has your wife ever had a baby? 
Like what kind of suffering does a woman have to go through to have a child, to bring life into the world? What kind of suffering do you have to experience? It's quite remarkable. It's so remarkable. It's like, and I think death is the same way. Even when animals die or when people die, you know, there is this unbelievable suffering that goes on, but there's something about that process that's like, it's just, it's just how it is. Like it's suffering, it's suffering to be a human and all the years in between life, birth and death, like all the suffering you experience throughout your life. So like, if you take an animal, you know, there is also, I believe, now I don't hunt. I'm, I'm literally going off of like living with a guy that lives for this. This is his whole existence. He, I mean, I'm not even kidding you. Like that's all just being out in the mountains and, and, and finding these animals. I mean, he doesn't hunt all year. You got to have tags to do that, but he's like out there watching these animals. He knows these animals behaviors. He can track, he can track animals. How many people can track animals? Like he can track anything. It's crazy. I'm so observant in the woods. I'm just like, whoa, 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 walking through the woods. <laughs> it's like, okay, there's a mountain lion track. Oh, there's this, this. And I'm just like, what? Huh? How did you see that? You know? So, but I do see this process as like, I think what happens is that in that moment, that's what Ryan says too. The worst part about hunting is killing it because the minute you kill it, part of that suffering that you go through is like over and then you go into a different type of suffering like I just killed something and now I have to take responsibility for that and now I have to find it and now I have to like you know it's it's like a suffering but it's almost like a suffering that people need in order to grow you know it's like if you had a dog that you love and your dog dies, you know, a lot of dogs end up having to go to the vet and dying by someone, by the vet. And that's horribly traumatic for a lot of people, but that's like the suffering that we go through as, as we're human beings. So I think if you have it within you to do the hunting, I think that if you don't have those feelings, something is wrong with you. Meaning if you don't mentally and emotionally have that feeling of suffering where you there's a dichotomy within you that's like pulling it like was this right was this wrong is am I gonna you know like what do you do with that feeling and how do you respect the animal it's like if you don't have that that's where something's disconnected to me and this is where I don't think non-hunters understand is that suffering is part of life you can't avoid suffering and as people we eat just like the animals eat you know the wolf kills the elk and you know uh, uh, like things eat and they kill each other and they're suffering like horrible suffering but I think in the end it helps us to be in a lot of ways closer to our own mortality it makes us realize that we too are animals and we too you know we are this is the life cycle you know, and I think it's really important to teach children that too. So they see like, don't be afraid of, of the death. You know, the death is just a continuance. It's just the next phase of life and whatever you believe, but it is a part of the life cycle and the soil and the regeneration, all these things we've been talking about 
doesn't actually happen without death. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think that that seems like it is. I remember when my daughter shot her first mule deer. I, you probably watched that film. Um, I don't know if you watched that gritty film with Paley. And yeah, Hillary I think I saw that one. Hunt. Yeah. And she laid in the wind for like an hour or two. I don't know. She was crying and it was so cold. And Ryan was like, don't shoot the deer till he stands up. And like it was getting dark. We were like, the deer's not going to stand up. <laughs> like, oh my God. And that was brutal. That was like, what 12 year old is just going to sit there and do that, you know? And, and then, but I remember when she shot it and there was just like this look on her face that was like, she just matured in that moment. It was almost like Mm -hmm. a rite of passage. You know, I just, that's another thing. Like, I don't think children have rites of passages anymore where they learn to suffer. They have a suffering event. I think girls have it more than boys do. (laughs) Girls learn to suffer very young, but like, that moment where she realized like she just did that she made the decision to do that because Ryan would be like you don't have to do this you don't have to do this you make sure you only do it if you want you know he kept saying that to her you don't have to stay here you can get up if you want we can leave and she was just like no no and it took her that hour probably to process what she was about to do yeah and walking over to find that deer I remember like because I was super emotional because it was the first time I'd actually been on a hunt. So I'd never been on a hunt with Ryan. I'd been on a hunt. I watched my daughter kill the animal, which is a whole different ball game than your husband doing it, who that's his thing. It's like your child doing it, especially your daughter. I don't know. There's something about it. Just like it's emotionally overwhelming. I know it was emotionally overwhelming for Ryan because he's always looked for a hunting buddy. He's always wanted somebody to understand him. And we got to that animal and what I remember the most, and I got a video of it, a couple of videos of it, is she sat down with that deer and she was rubbing the deer and she was like feeling his antlers. And I mean, I was crying. She was crying a little bit, but I got this video where she didn't know we were watching. The boys kind of went off. They were trying to figure out how to get a picture. You know, the sun was like almost like all Ryan's hunts the sun is going down and there's almost no (laughs) light left and I caught her with the deer and she was just rubbing her hands down his body rubbing his her hands and then she just stopped like where his heart was and she just closed her eyes and she was just like feeling this deer and I happened to be standing back and I was like oh my gosh I got to get a video of this because it wasn't like I didn't tell her to do that nobody told her to do that nobody told her how to act and it was this moment where she was like realizing I did this you know I took this life and it was so powerful because it just makes you realize like you know if you never have a connection to that and death is always negative you know if we weren't going to get anything out of this animal and have a story about this animal and like be able to respect this animal and eat the meat and all that kind of stuff you know maybe it would have been really traumatic and I can see where in a lot of the world, in a lot of situations, children are traumatized by death because it is traumatizing, right? Yeah. But like this was different. And so it was so powerful for me as a mother to see that in her. And um, I was really blessed to get that experience, you know, because I'm, oh, I yeah. probably would have never had that experience had Ryan not been my husband and he had not 
encouraged her to do this, you know? Now, will my younger daughter do that? I don't know. She's very different than my older daughter. She may never want to do that. And that's okay. But um, I think that suffering is like, is part of the acceptance of, you know, growing up. Yeah, definitely. So anyways, here I am crying. All right. <laughs> okay. Havenbeef.com. Thanks. This is fun. Yeah, it was really good. Thanks for having me.